Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and affiliate networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder here at Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hey, Greg. Happy to be together and do another show with you. Absolutely. Let's get right down to it. Now, for those of you not familiar with Fred, he's a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. He is past chair and former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as at FS Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author aclwatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And if you're in the market for digital media content development, curation, engagement for your hospital health system or enterprise, please ping me on Twitter via at 2HealthGuru. And now for today's special guest, Dr. Ron Lepke. His bio notes over 30 years of clinical and physician executive experience in occupational health, preventive medicine, and medical management. He has presented nationally and internationally, as well as authored numerous articles and book chapters on the topics of preventive medicine, employer health, and productivity, workplace wellness, occupational health, managed health care, quality improvement, adoption of evidence-based medicine, consumer-driven healthcare, and innovative models of healthcare delivery. Dr. Lepke is board board certified in preventive medicine, fellowship trained in occupational medicine, and is a fellow of both the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine, that's A-C-O-E-M, and the American College of Preventive Medicine, A-C-P-M. Dr. Lepke was president of A-C-O-E-M and is a member of the board of directors for, was a member for the board of directors for eight years. He also served as co-chair of the A-C-O-E-M section on health and productivity. In addition, Dr. Lepke was chairman of the Center for Disease Control Prevention Diabetes at Work Group and as part of the CDC and the National Institutes of Health, National Diabetes Education Program. So, Fred, with no further ado, over to you. Let's get to know Dr. Lepke and what he's up to at U.S. Preventive Medicine. Thank you so much, Greg. And, Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Well, Fred, it's great to talk with you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, very exciting. You know, obviously, you've got this long uh, storied background in preventive medicine. You were one of the earlier folks trying to push this through. Um, maybe we start with why is this issue so important for employers? Well, uh, I think it's summed up in a um, comment that I heard from Dr. Kathy Bossy. Uh, she's the global medical director of Dow Chemical. And she got her C-suite support for all of her prevention, wellness, uh, employee health, population health management programs, and summarized the key points for her executives in the following way. The reason wellness and population health management is a priority for employers is that, number one, this inexorable rise in U.S. healthcare costs, that's huge waste, about a third of healthcare costs. Number two, the prevention opportunities. Prevention efforts could eliminate about 30 to 50% of the chronic illness burden driving these health costs. 
And number three, massive quality and safety issues that are in the U.S. healthcare system. There's over 200 to 400,000 deaths per year and 10 to 20 times that number of sublethal events from errors and mistakes. Number four, and maybe the most imperative, the business value of health as a key driver of the other corporate priorities. In other words, better health improves employee performance and engagement, loyalty, morale, and safety. And it helps the employer be a, an employer of choice. They attract and retain better employees. And thirdly, uh, the corporate reputation, reliability, and sustainability that is improved by a healthier, safer workforce. So we have these uh, employers who have been forward thinking, I guess, and they put, they've been putting in and focusing on these areas of prevention. Um, what are some of the um, likely results or where have we seen results? Obviously in the industry, there's been a lot of question. There's been some debate, you know, we had, we had a big debate about that, but where are some of these results coming from and what are they? Well, um, in fact, I had the privilege of participating with uh, other colleagues and researchers and thought leaders to answer that question. Uh, and, and these uh, included Ron Getzel, Dr. Ken Pelletier, uh, many others. We actually performed a meta-analysis review of the literature and of case studies examining the evidence over the past 30 years. <clears throat> and our bottom line finding, which was published in the Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine in September of 2014, was that if you, well, wellness works and prevention pays if it's done in the right ways. In other words, uh, random acts of wellness are not effective and they don't work. But if you put in place uh, comprehensive evidence-based approaches, then you can get significant return on investment and uh, the full value of the investment. So you just used a phrase that I thought was great, random acts of wellness don't work. So let's say you're an employer out there and I mean, I've looked around, you've been around this long time, there are literally thousands of companies in this space doing wellness and health promotion or, 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 or they've stuck up the shingle that says they do that. How do you identify or what should employers be looking for in order to select an organization that does more than random acts of kindness? Well, so there's several criteria and we actually list them in that article. I won't go through all of them, but um, a few of the key attributes and common characteristics of successful workplace wellness programs uh, include the following. Number one, uh, executive management support and a commitment to a healthy culture at work so that uh, management uh, walks the walk and they don't just talk the talk. In other words, um, you've heard before, uh, culture eats policy for lunch every day. And, and that's why a commitment to a true culture of health um, with mutual respect of management and employees and, and having an environment that makes the healthy choice the easier choice uh, is important. Number two, effective communication strategy and implementation. Uh, this needs to be seen as just part of what the employer is about and what the uh, mission of the workforce is about. And then third, incentives uh, that help motivate employees to participate in the program to get uh, higher 
levels of engagement and participation. Uh, but when we actually did a study of over 120 employers, we found that it was the culture of health commitment and the communication strategy that trumped the incentive in terms of uh, what led to higher rates of participation. Linking some of the programs to business objectives, having multi-year strategic planning, and getting employees involved in developing goals and objectives are also important elements. And then finally, one of the most important is measuring um, both pre and post uh, impact analysis, uh, evaluate the effectiveness of the programs. And, and I know that, uh, you know, you're at U.S. Preventive Medicine, you're one of the few companies that has gone through the uh, Care Innovations Validation Institute um, program to, to validate your results. You know, in full disclosure, I sit as, on their advisory board, as Greg mentioned at the beginning. Um, what chose you to do that? And talk a little about what the program was that you actually got validated, because I think you were the first vendor in this space to do that. Mm, well, thank you, Fred. And yeah, I have a great deal of respect for the work you and others are doing um, in that uh, validation institute. I think it's a, a very important element that we all agree on some uh, scientific rigor and, and have things measured in some common uh, approaches so that we can see, uh, you know, what's working and maybe which ones are working better than others. And one of the things that we did was... Um, submit uh, our data that was available, um, the medical pharmacy claims data of uh, our client across a population of about 33,000 uh, employees where um, the analysts, researchers there at the Validation Institute uh, went through and their methodology and found that in fact, we did yield a significant and sustainable reduction of hospitalizations and emergency room visits across several uh, chronic conditions, including diabetes, asthma, coronary artery disease, hypertension, COPD, and congestive heart failure. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> it was um, a 41% reduction over a four-year period. So um, we were happy to see that. Wow, that's fantastic. And so, you know, when I think about it, you know, you look at the whole broad sense, and I think your programs go from early stage wellness to, you know, obviously chronic disease management for employers. While you're working on what may be longer term outcomes from wellness, is it we can get those shorter term outcomes in the <laughs> chronic disease areas? Is that where people should be thinking about? Well, um, I think this really <clears throat> brings up the issue of what is a population health management strategy that yields sustainable impacts in a population in both <clears throat> improving health but reducing costs. And some of those um, are leading metrics that you want to track and you want to manage so that <clears throat> it yields the lagging metric of financial net savings. Some of the leading metrics would be your participation and engagement rates in the population um, in the programs. The health risks, what's happening? Are they uh, going down or going up, staying the same? What's happening to uh, utilization in emergency rooms, hospitalizations? And <clears throat> some of the other 
particular metrics that if you manage those well in the first year or so, then you're going to yield that uh, financial net savings over time. Great. And you talked a, a little bit about, you know, changes in risks. Can you talk about that so people better understand what are the risks you're looking at and what sort of changes can be expected from a good program? Yeah, so um, that's an important element of uh, measuring impact. What we chose, and I've been doing this for several years now, is uh, using Dr. D. Eddington's model of health risk uh, analysis and impact analysis. He has 15 different health risk factors, uh, including things like uh, blood pressure, BMI, uh, stress level, uh, fasting glucose, <clears throat> several others. And if a person has five or more of those 15 risk factors that are high risk, then they are in the high risk category. If they have three or four of those 15 that are high, they're in the moderate category. And if they're zero to two that are high in the 15, then they're low risk. And this relates to risk of driving healthcare costs. So in our studies that we've published actually of the impact of the preventing plan on employer populations, we were able to show that uh, where we had all the data, health risk assessment, blood tests, uh, biometric measures at baseline, and then after two years on their preventive plan, that we were able to significantly reduce the number of people in high risk, reduce the number of people in moderate risk, and increase the number of people into low risk. And in fact, of the people starting high risk, we had 45.5% move down to moderate risk and 18.5% move all the way down to low risk within two years of their involvement in their personal preventive plan. The reality though, Fred, I, we wanted to make sure beyond just having a you know, uh, categorically significant shift in health risk, I wanted to make sure it was clinically significant. So we measured the readings of their blood pressure, of their blood sugar, and these other uh, lab tests that were objectively measured. And we found, for instance, in blood pressure of the cohort of people that were high risk blood pressure at baseline, 81% of those individuals at 744 people were able to come out of that high risk blood pressure after two years on their preventing plan. And their reading was 123 over 77. So it came down to normal that's clinically significant. Whereas if they'd have just come down to uh, out from above 140 over 90 of their blood pressure down to 139 over 89, that wouldn't have been clinically significant. So we were glad to see that it actually normalized their blood pressure. And the vast majority of those people did it without medication, just lifestyle management. Wow, and I think you raised an important issue and I wanna sort of clarify this for our audience. You talked about the movement of risks down. And I know you've probably seen these and I've seen some companies present data that shows, look, we moved our risks down. The high risk people, we had 45% drop or 40 or whatever the number they put. But what they're not showing and what you talked about a little bit is the net net savings that they people are moving up too, but you had a net net movement down, whereas they don't even report sometimes I've seen that movement from low risk to high risk that offset that great number they put. 
Well, you've hit a very important element there, Fred. And that's part of what Dr. Eddington's model is. And uh, he was a co-researcher and co-author in our published studies at U.S. Preventing Medicine. And so in his methodology, we do what's called a Markov chain analysis. And that's just what you said. In essence, we watch where every individual goes over time. Do they remain the same in health risk? Do they go up in health risk? Do they go down in health risk? And so we watch the net-net movement in the population. And that's uh, when we found that it was a dramatic movement in the right direction, we were pleased. Yeah, and as I recall in Dr. Eddington's work, the natural flow, as he calls it, is a movement up over time. That's right. If you do not have tensional intervention of wellness or population health management in a population, he has shown over 30 years of research and over uh, now, I think, 14 million lives that health risks get worse. It's the natural flow of health risks, but they get worse over time if you don't have this intentional intervention. And that's both at a personal level and a population level. Great. And I want to touch on one more issue before we get to U.S. preventive medicine. And this is a, a statement that, that you've used for years, and I'm not going to steal the thunder from it. But can you talk to our audience a little bit about the um, Jim Freeze um, compression of morbidity model and how important that is and, and what that sort mm -hmm. of shows? Well, Certainly. And I, I think that begins to touch on, you know, what we've been talking about here previously is um, what's driving a lot of the value for the employers uh, that want to engage in workplace wellness and population health management. But let's turn the page and talk a little bit about um, how many employees often say, but what's in it for me to engage in these programs. So let's talk about the personal value of better health and well-being. And uh, there obviously are some extrinsic incentives that are of value to employees like financial incentives to participate or out-of-pocket medical cost savings over time because they're healthier, but also their job performance improves and they tend to have um, a higher uh, career development pathway. And then secondly are the intrinsic incentives that drive behaviors over time. And that's where you um, we talk about this compression of morbidity that Dr. Fries and others has uh, found is that in the, in America, people are born, they get out in their late twenties, early thirties, and they're at their peak of health. And then just because of this natural flow and health risks ending up developing chronic illnesses, their health goes down, their quality of life goes down. And many, too many Americans, over 150 million Americans have one or more chronic conditions, end up later in life with not a very good quality of life. They're on multiple medications, they're in and out of the hospitals and emergency rooms. Whereas they found that if people just paid attention to a healthier lifestyle, I'm not talking about a marathon runner, I'm talking about people that were more physically active, ate healthier, didn't use tobacco, that type of thing. They found those people, um, when they got to their peak of health, they were able to plateau in a lot of ways and maintain a very high quality of health much later in life and enjoying and adding years to their life as well as life to their years. The quality of life was better. And then dying more suddenly at lower cost late in life. In fact, the sports metaphor to that is sudden death and overtime. 
That, and that's the quote I was looking for. Um, it really is a fascinating way to look at it. And when you explain it to people that way, it really resonates. And, and I appreciate you going that over, over that for our audience. Um, let's turn now to, to the company, U.S. Preventive Medicine. You've had these results that you've been able to document through the Validation Institute. Um, who is the target market for the preventive plan? Well, it's really um, whatever organizations are at financial risk for the clinical and health risk of a population. Now, that could be self-insured employers. It could be uh, even health plans covering uh, fully insured employers or others because they want population health management that yields better health for everyone, better health care for those that need it, at better value, higher quality, and lower cost. Now, that's part of the triple aim that Dr. Don Berwick has talked about for years. And so part of the way we go about it is providing evidence-based um, whole population, whole person health management. Now, what do I mean by that? The whole population means we do primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention across the uh, population spectrum. Primary prevention is identifying people that are at low health risk and then keeping those healthy people healthy. That's what Dr. Eddington says. In fact, think of it this way. Let's spend a lot of time and effort trying to keep people from falling into a river of illness in the first place, instead of so much time and expense and effort trying to fish them out of the river before they go over a waterfall of complications, comorbidities, and costs. The secondary prevention is earlier detection and diagnosis through evidence-based screening. And then tertiary prevention is earlier evidence-based intervention with disease management, care management for those with a chronic condition like diabetes. Help them be the best diabetic they can be. In fact, we've had people reverse their disease and get off of medication. Wow. So... You've, you've got this program that covers the population. How does the program work when, when you put it in for a company? What's sort of the process there? So we uh, actually do some initial upfront assessment and evaluation of the culture of the company and identify uh, gaps or opportunities of how they can either maintain or improve a commitment to a culture of health. We work with them on a marketing communications and branding strategy so that, again, this is something people see as a long-term uh, part of their mission uh, as an organization. And then uh, we get people engaged, uh, oftentimes aligning uh, incentives with our thousand-point preventive score that is generated for individuals throughout the year as they interact with their personal preventive plan. The way we do that is they come on and register. They go a, through a health risk assessment. We call it a health and well-being assessment. And then they get some biometric and blood tests. And then we run all that information through our clinical preventive medicine algorithms and generate their personalized preventive plan. And then they, in their own personal uh, preventive plan portal, can engage in programs, uh, competitive challenges, do health coaching, do uh, nurse-based care management, uh, and tap into video uh, resources, uh, health information libraries. Uh, they can actually track with their wireless devices and trackers. It comes uh, seamlessly, wirelessly into the preventive plan and helps improve their preventive score. 
we're actually able to assimilate the input for over uh, it's almost 200 of these uh, wireless tracker devices nowadays. So that whole process gives them a personal preventive plan uh, that's fun and engaging and um, they're able to then sustain the health behavior changes and generate the kinds of impacts uh, on health risk reductions and costs that we've shown. Right. So for the employers, at the end of the day, one, they're getting a program for the employees, but you're also providing them with that detailed post analytics to say, here's what we've given you. And I, I assume there are monthly reports, et cetera, to track progress. You're exactly right. And that's one of the fundamental um, values of, of our program is that we do a baseline analysis of uh, medical pharmacy claims data, as well as these other health risk assessments, biometric data, um, and other elements. And then we track that and give them an updated report month by month, and then give them an annual report so that it uh, can demonstrate the effectiveness and the return on investment. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about, I pick it up from you. I've known you for years. You can hear it in your voice. You're really passionate about this stuff. What got you into it? Well, Fred, I, I started out in, um, you know, being a primary care physician, family practice, and uh, I was very frustrated uh, being in the emergency room so often, having to take care of uh, patients that were experiencing a personal health crisis uh, that for the most part could have been prevented. Uh, it, it was very disheartening to stand over their bedside and, and what ended up being their deathbed and um, them telling me if only I would have known. And yet over the years, I've come to realize it's not what we know, but it's what we do that makes the difference and writes the chapters of our life and our health. And so I decided to go back and, and get board certified in preventive medicine and, um, and then the fellowship in occupational medicine because I wanted to provide the uh, solution through the workplace and work with employers. But I, I just tell you, I, I think the need to increase our emphasis on prevention is more urgent today than ever. I mean, at a higher level, a commitment to prevention would help reduce the burden of risk and illness in our entire society. It would unleash financial and clinical resources through the enhanced capacity of physicians and hospitals. It would improve the health and productivity of our nation's workforce, lower healthcare costs, and ultimately enhance the vitality of our nation's economy. So I hope that we can all work together and move forward transforming our nation's current reactive illness-based sick care system to a more proactive wellness-based true health system built from a cornerstone of population health management and upon the pillars of prevention. Wow. Uh, we'll have to pull that one out of the archives to keep putting that one up live. That was great. So let me, let me ask you one closing question. We're coming down to the final minutes here, and you've been at this, Ron, for a long time. You're considered a national global thought leader in this space. Where's it all going? What might be some of the headwinds you're going to face? And, and what do we need to keep pushing to perfect the whole art and science of this stuff? Well, um, I mean, if, if I had a crystal ball, that, that'd be great. But I don't. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think, though, that we are seeing transformation finally, uh, moving beyond the volume-based uh, approaches in healthcare to a value-based uh, kind of outcomes driven 
approach where you, where you measure the, the outcomes and the higher quality and the lower cost uh, rather than just paying the providers for the volume of services that they provide. And I think there's therefore going to be more investment in prevention. Right now, there's only five cents out of every healthcare dollar in the nearly three trillion spent each year. Only five cents uh, per dollar spent on prevention. That's going to improve over time because everyone's going to be able to see the tremendous value of that. So I think uh, we have bright days ahead. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ron. It was really a pleasure having you. It was my pleasure, Fred. Be well and do well. Take care. You too. Thank you. And that'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I do want to thank Dr. Ron Lepke for his time and insights today. Uh, follow the good work at U.S. Preventive Medicine on the web at, w- at www.uspm.com and on Twitter by at USPM. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week for Fred Goldstein, this is Greg Masters saying bye now. Bye now.